So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Um, like Sam alluded to in, in uh, the uh, singing time that we are studying the book of Acts, if you're new to the Parks Church, here's what we do. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible, and we are walking all the way through uh, the book of Acts, all 28 chapters, uh, and we find ourselves here in the middle of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we, uh, Lord willing, will be in verses 23 through uh, 31. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen uh, behind me. And so what we'll do with this one is I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read a little, we'll talk about it, read a little bit more, and, and, uh, and go through this passage. If you've been with us in Acts, here's what I hope uh, you're seeing uh, about the early church, about the church, about the church that we just sang about and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, is that you're seeing the church um, as something more than simply an organization of people, Right? Like you're seeing that if you've walked with us in Acts. You're seeing it even more than just a, a, a movement, even though the church is, is a movement, we're seeing that. What I hope you're seeing as we've walked through now a four and a half chapters of Acts is that the church is this. The church is absolutely a walking incarnation of God's power. That the church is the walking incarnation of God's power. Now, I want to explain it by thinking about what we've seen. Acts chapter 1. Jesus, after his resurrection, is still with the disciples and his followers, right? Numbering 120 at this time. He tells them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you're going to receive, right, a power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the, the, these Christ followers, these early disciples are expecting the power of God to come through God the Holy Spirit, right? And then Acts chapter 2, what happens? Boom, the Holy Spirit falls, the church is formed, and the Holy Spirit falls in what? In, in power, right? You see this amazing witness of power, and, 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 and Peter gets up and he explains this. He preaches his first sermon um, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, and what? It goes out in power, right? It goes out in 3,000 people, the hearers who hear this message, respond to the gospel, receive Christ, like it's this incredible moment. And then you even fast forward to Acts chapter 3, right? You see again the power of the Holy Spirit come when a lame man who has never walked, right? He has never walked. Peter and John lay their hands upon him, right, and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. He gets up and he walks, right? The power of the Holy Spirit on display. Again, Peter, following that incredible event, gets up and he preaches, right? He preaches a sermon explaining, listen, it's not some mystical thing that healed this man. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth who healed this man deeply and both physically, right, his soul and his actual legs, Right? And then, then these, these, these religious leaders, they hear him, the Sadducees, and they say, listen, you can't be talking about Jesus. So they pull him and imprison John and Peter, and then they, they bring them in front of the council. Right, this is, this is getting into the beginning of Acts chapter 4 from last week. And, and, and they have no way of actually convicting them of any crime. And so these religious leaders, what they do is they threaten them. They threaten them with their lives. They threaten them with who knows what, right? Killing them, keeping them incarcerated, who knows what, right? But they threaten them. And how do Peter and John respond in front of the council, right? Now, now, Acts chapter 4 tells us that being full of the Holy Spirit, what did they say to these leaders, right? These Sadducees, this, this council, the elders. They said, listen, do what you've got to do. But if you're trying to shut us up about what we've seen and what we've heard, it ain't going to happen. So come what may, Right? And so then Acts chapter 4, right, there's this incredible power that flows, right? And I ho hope you're seeing this, that the early church is absolutely an incarnation of God's power. Now the question is, today, 
would you still define the church? And maybe even bring it closer to home, the local church, the local church you're a part of. If it's the Parks Church, think about this. As a body or group of people, absolutely having the incarnation of God's power among them, in them and through them. Right? So oftentimes, I think what happens in the church, and when I say the church, I mean our lives individually and corporately is this, is that we look at historic times in our lives or in the life of the church, and we try to live off of those moments of God's power, right? We try to live off yesterday's power. When what we've seen in Acts is that there is a fresh empowerment day after day after day in the life of the early church. Every moment there is a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit for the people of God. But I think what happens so oftentimes, even in my life, is that I point back to where God was powerful, where God showed up in amazing and mighty ways, and I really try to live my life forward from that power. Listen, go to Exodus chapter 16. God has just freed his people from slavery, right? Walked them across on dry land. And he says, listen, I will provide for you everyday manna. I will provide food for you every day. Don't worry. And what do the people of God, listen, what do we do? God has said, I will provide for you everyday manna, right? And there's going to be one day, right, that it won't happen. So what do people begin to do? Read it, Exodus chapter 16. They begin to take that day's manna and store it and hold it back, right, for security, for comfort, going, listen, what if he doesn't show up, right? He just split the seas. He just freed you from slavery. But listen, you're like, those foolish Israelites, that's us. We store this manna, and what does the Bible say happened to their manna? It rotted, it spoiled the security and the power they thought it would bring to them that day, it couldn't even provide. And so listen, that's what happens to us when we look back, and we're meant to look back. We're meant to look back, and you know why we're meant to look back? Is because it reminds us of God's faithfulness for today that his power is new for us today, that his mercy is new for us today, that God's power is available for us, the daily bread for us today, not living on past experiences. Maybe you're a student in here, right? And maybe the past experience for you is, is youth camp, right? And that's an awesome experience. That's a moment where God meets in power, met my life there in power. But listen, we can't live on those past experiences. Heck, maybe you're an adult in here. And you're still living on an experience from youth camp, right? To this day going, listen, I remember this. I remember when that happened, which is great and fine. But what about the reality of God showing up in power today? What about what he promises to provide for us our daily bread today? Are we actually walking in that kind of power as a church? In that kind of receiving as the people of God? Because that's what I see in the early church. That's what I see at the beginning of Acts, of people who are desperate for God's power today. I'm not going to look back at what happened in the upper room. I'm not going to look back at what happened to the lame man. I need God's power today. And so here's what Luke is going to do in the middle of Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see it. He's going to link the power of God to a praying people. Look at this. You want to know where the power comes from. It comes from the source of the Holy Spirit, but you want to know how it comes to these people? 
because they humbled themselves in prayer. Look at this, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and responded to what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Stop right there. Remember the backdrop. Peter and John were just released from being in front, absolutely threatened by these leaders, probably with their lives, that if they continue to proclaim the gospel, they will be imprisoned forever or they will be killed. Stop doing it. And so here is the first stop, right? They just told the the, the authorities of the land, if you will, they just go, listen, you do whatever you need to do to us, threaten or whatever, we're going to keep proclaiming the gospel. The first stop after that moment is where? Is with the community of faith. It's with the church. Notice it says that they called their friends. They called up their friends and they said, listen, this is what we just walked through. This is what we just heard in the name of Jesus. Be encouraged, right? Be encouraged. And then what is the church's response? What is the circle of friends' response to the persecution they just walked through? They lifted their voices together to God. Prayer. Right? They're going, listen, we just saw God show up in a powerful way in front of this council. We just saw the Holy Spirit fill us. But listen, that filling is not sufficient for what God has called us to in the future. We're coming together, and guess what? We need to lift our voice. So their priority was what? Prayer. Their priority as a new church, as believers in under persecution, was prayer. What is our first reaction? What is your first reaction when times get hard? Like seriously. Or something, something comes in conflict with your expectation of how things should be. Someone presses against you when, when something takes place that, that runs contrary to what you think should be occurring. What is your immediate reaction? What's your first response? Be honest right? It's your first response. Your first reaction is what? Oh, complaint. Mine, is that just me, right? Why is this going this way? Right? What, what's your first response? I, I know my heart, my inclination is to complain. It's to gripe. It's to moan. Oh, I may call my friends together, but it's not for the purpose of prayer. It's for the purpose of airing. Go, hey, listen, I need you. I need you to comfort me, right? I need you to console me. I need you to help me through this situation. What should our first response be? Oh, yes, call our friends together. Yes, absolutely. But call our friends together for the purpose of seeking God. Listen, what happens when a community of faith, when the church's first response is this? We're going to get together, and the first place we're going to go is not to Twitter, is not to Facebook, is not to some protest, but it's going to be before the God of the universe. Listen, that's the source of power. That is the place we must go to if we are going to be daily filled with that which makes this life actually be able to happen. We come before the source. We come before the God of the universe and go, God, we need you. It says that they lifted their witness together. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said the ultimate test of our profession of faith is our prayer life. How's that working out? Think about that. 
the ultimate profession of our faith, the proof of the faith that you and I proclaim is, in, is directly linked to our prayer life. Calvin, John Calvin, in his uh, famous work, The Institute, says this, that prayer is asking God to do what he has already promised. Listen, so what we see here is the impulse of a spirit-led Christian is that the first place we go after persecution, in persecution, is before God with the community of believers. It's a powerful picture of the actual community of faith working as it should be. And then we get here into the prayer. And listen, when we see prayers in Scripture, they serve as a model for us, right? They serve as a way to really evaluate how do I come before the Lord? One, do I, but how do I approach? Look at how this community of faith came before the Lord. Look, it says that they lifted their voices together, verse 24, and said, here is the beginning phrase of their prayer. Did you get it? Verse 24, the end. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. So the bedrock or the foundation to their prayer is starting with the sovereignty of God is starting with God being in absolute, utter control over everything. That's what sovereignty means, that he is, he is the ruler, that he is the authority. Everything operates according to his prerogative. Why would that matter? Why do you think for these guys and these gals, why would they start right here? They just left the authority, right? The seemingly, the earthly authority. Listen, they come before God and they go, listen, we just left the courts, we just left the temple, we just left the council, this authority, but we know who the true sovereign is. It's you. Remind our hearts. Listen, we're, even when we're singing songs like, you're my author, you're my maker, you're all those things, like, we're not reminding God because he forgot. You know that, right? We don't repeat it because God didn't hear us. We say those things to remind our hearts of who God is. And we repeat it, hear me, we repeat it because we don't hear it the first 473 times we say it. Because maybe at 474 we go, oh, he's my author. He's my maker. He is sovereign. He's in control of it all. He's, he's over it all. This is the bedrock of their foundation. And so listen, what we believe about the sovereignty of God will shape us as a church. You understand that, right? And some of us say, yes, I believe that God is sovereign, but we operate our lives not as him as sovereign, but who's the sovereign? Hey, all the time. Who's in control? Me. Whose prerogative is what dictates things? Me. And so constantly we have to remind ourselves in prayer, I am not sovereign. You are. I am not Lord of my life. You are. They start there. Sovereign Lord. Now, now then they go from God's sovereignty and they define it a little bit. What does God's sovereignty look like? And look at it, verse uh, 25, excuse me, middle of 24. It says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So right out of the gate, in their prayer, they're acknowledging God's sovereignty over it all. They just said, God, you are creator. When we think about the sovereignty of God, we must establish this fact in our minds and in our hearts that God created everything we see. The heavens, the earth, Every living creature in it was created by God. Listen, that's a controversial statement, church. Listen, you walk into many universities, many settings, many schools, academic places, non-academic places. You walk into your workplace and go, God created everything. See what kind of feedback you get, all right? 
Some of you have been in church too long, right? That is a controversial statement, but they are praying, acknowledging that they understand everything was created by God. That literally God's breath is his raw material. Like that is the sovereignty. That is the power of the God they're coming before. That's the confidence that they are standing on. So listen, when we think of the sovereignty of God, we need to understand his establishment and rule and reign over all of it because he created it. Not just because he said so, but because he's creator. And then they keep going. They say, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, right? Again, they're, they're praying to God, talking to him about who he is. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, so what did, what did Peter, or this group that are praying this prayer, what did they just announce in that moment? They just announced that God is sovereign over revelation. That he is a God who reveals. What they quote there is Psalm 2. Do you notice in your Bible, maybe you notice that little indention there. That is a psalm written nearly a thousand years before any of these events ever took place. The Jewish audience, they would have known that Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm. And so what they are praying to God is going, God, you are creator, but you are also revealer. You are also the God of revelation. Revelation of what? What does God reveal? What do we need revealed? God reveals who he is. That is God's primary message he is revealing, who he is and what he does. He is God, he is creator, he is sovereign, he is absolutely Lord, and he is a God who redeems. And they are going, listen, you are a God who reveals. You're a God who calls the shots before they happen because you're creator, because you're sovereign. And then they say this, again, another controversial statement, even in their prayer. Verse 28. You or to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about the first two words in their prayer. Sovereign Lord, you created it all. You revealed it all of who you are and what you're about and what you do. And everything that has taken place in history has been predetermined by you, predestined by you, sovereign Lord. And so listen, he is our God. The God we come to, the God we're singing to here is not just a God of creation, not just a God of revelation, but he is a God who is absolutely over history. And what we mean by that is this, that God has predetermined everything to take place exactly how he intends it. No, no, I see some of you squirming around in your seats a little bit because the word predestination was in here. Oftentimes, that word is only and exclusively used in terms of salvation, right? And we can talk about that, and we see that in other places, in Ephesians and in the New Testament. But what they're praying here is all of history, everything, that there is nothing outside of the scope and plan of their God. Listen, the idea or the doctrine of predestination is meant in this moment and for us to bring assurance to God's people, to God's final victory over all those who oppose him. 
So the confidence, they are coming before God going, God, we are sure of this, that everything that is happening from our persecution to the death of your son was in your plan before the foundations of the earth, so we trust you. We trust you for no matter what's ahead, that you have predetermined every step and every moment of every day that this earth is afforded. You've planned it. And so listen, for them, for these early Christians, and I hope for us, God's absolute sovereignty is not something that they are debating. It's not something up in the air as if God has removed his hands, right, from anything. No, he is an active agent in all things, including, hear me, what they pointed to, the cross and death of his son Jesus. That's what they were talking about. So for them, the cross of Jesus Christ was not an accident. That God was the author of the cross. In the ultimate sense, it was not Pilate or Herod who put Jesus to death. It was God the Father who handed him over. It was the action of God who handed Jesus over to be crucified. Why? Because he loved us. Listen, this is so important for us to understand. Some of you are offended by that statement because it doesn't fit within your version of who God is. Listen, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, but God demonstrated his love toward us. Get that? In that while we were still yet sinners, some of you know the verse. What happens? Christ died. So Christ's death, let's think about this, English majors, right? Christ's death is predicated and displays what? Right, what? The love of God. So the cross of Christ is how God displays his glory and his love for us. Again, back to Martin Lloyd-Jones on Acts. He says this. He says, the cross an accident? The cross a surprise? The cross something that might not have happened and that needed not have happened? The cross merely something that God uses? No, the cross was planned, foreordained before the world was ever created, before man was ever made. God has planned the death of Christ, his son. This is the explanation, and these first believers had seen it. Listen, at this moment in Acts, we are about two months removed from Jesus' death on the cross. They had witnessed this fact, and what flows from their lips, God, you knew You knew the way of salvation. You knew the plan before the foundations of the earth and how you would display your love toward us, and it included the death of your son, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Listen, believers, this has to be our foundation. This has to be our understanding if we truly are calling God sovereign Lord. And so listen, it's when we come before him, and listen, I would challenge you in your prayers to set as you pray, to lay a foundation of who God is first, right? They haven't even jumped to petition. They haven't even jumped to their request yet. They lay a foundation of who God is, right? Don't, don't just jump in, Heavenly Father, and by the way, think about what you're praying. When you're saying, Heavenly Father, who are you approaching? When they're saying, Sovereign Lord, they, they are saying those words intentionally, Holy God, Right? Lay a foundation first in your prayer life of the character and nature of God because oftentimes when you lay that foundation first, it'll filter what you ask next. It'll be the filter in which you approach God with your petitions before him. But they get to this place. They get to this place of laying their needs. But look again what they're praying. This is verse 29. And now. 
in light of that, in light of the sovereign God, the creator God, the revealing God, the God over history, in light of the God who would send his son to die for us and give us power and strength, here's what our hearts long for. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What? They just got threatened with their lives. They just got released from prison, from jail, right? And don't think American jail, okay? Think the worst place possible to be. Just released from there. And the first petition they have is, listen, Lord, look upon our threats and give us boldness to speak your word. Okay, back to our first reactions. Back to our impulses, right? When we go through suffering, when we go through persecution, when we face trials, when we face those conflicts, right? When our petitions, when time comes for our petition before the Lord, what is it that we ask? Release. God, stop the persecution. Listen, cease this. Stop that. Remove us. Heal this. Right? Take me out of this. No, their petition is this, that they would be more bold for the gospel than ever before. That God would look upon their threats, literally that he would see them where they are, and he would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give them boldness to continue to speak his word, not remove them. Why? Because he's sovereign Lord. Because they're going, God, we trust you. We trust that every step is ordained by you. And so God, give us the boldness to speak what you would have us speak. Give us the boldness to live in these moments as you would have us live. But that's not just what they pray. That's not it. Look at the next line. While you stretch out your hand to heal. So they ask for God to give them boldness to continue to speak his word in light of where they find themselves, persecution or the mountaintop, right? Give us boldness. And then they ask that he might stretch out his hand to heal. And this isn't just like in the physical sense. They are asking and pleading that even for those authorities that threatened their life, that God would heal their hearts, that God would heal their land. They are praying for their enemies. They're praying for those who are far off from God, that he would absolutely heal them, that he would awaken their hearts to who he truly is. This is what they're praying. They're praying, God, give us the boldness to speak your word, and you heal their hearts. You awaken their eyes. Okay, again, back to our first impulse. When somebody comes against us in persecution or in suffering, do we pray for them that God might heal their hearts? that God might awaken their lives to the goodness and glory through Jesus? Do we pray for their salvation? Listen, this must be the impulse of the church, is that we pray that God would heal by his hand of salvation alone. Is that the first place we come to? Heal. And then they go on. And that you would do signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, that more signs and wonders are done, not for signs and wonders' sake, not to gather a bigger crowd at a church and to get more applause, no signs and wonders that would take place so that Jesus would be seen, so that the glory of Christ would be on display. Listen, in what you see moving forward in Acts, you see this absolutely occur. Signs and wonders and miracles keep going forth. Why? So that Jesus is known. 
not the name of the early church, but the name of Jesus Christ alone. And then what happens? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Right? Like the ground shook, okay? Not like earthquake in in Southern California, but like this is like a supernatural shaking taking place on the ground they're standing. And here's what happens. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. Did you see that there was a new filling of God's power in the moment that they prayed, the ground shook before them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Listen, the filling of the Holy Spirit, we will see this throughout Acts, the filling of the Holy Spirit in a person and in a community of faith always leads to speaking the word of God with their lips and with their lives, no matter what the circumstance is. And so you go, okay, well, why did the ground shake? Why did, why, why did it happen? Anytime in the Bible you see the ground shaking, it is this idea that the Lord is trying to communicate, I've heard you and I'm here. Right? When, when Jesus Christ breathed his last, right? John 19, 30, right? When he says, it is finished, what happened, right? The ground shook and the veil was torn. That was God's approval, stamp of approval on salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. So here we have the desperate disciples praying for God's power again to go through them. And what takes place? The ground shakes. God goes, I hear you and I'm with you. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went and spoke with all boldness. You see, I think we can come to these stories in a narrative like Acts and go, wow, isn't that amazing? And what we have to ask ourselves is this. Does God still operate like he did in the book of Acts or not? Does he still fill his church anew with his fresh power every day for what he calls them to accomplish today? The answer to that, by the way, is yes. But listen to me. Before boldness, before the filling of the Holy Spirit, One came prayer, came desperation before God, going, Sovereign Lord, here's what we we know of you, and here's what we ask of you. And then there was a shaking. Like, that. let's be honest. That had to freak them out, okay? They weren't just like, woo, yeah, that's what we expected the Lord to do. But here's what I think we're missing in our lives, in my life, and the life of this church, that we are not willing to allow God to shake the foundations of our hearts, to shake some of those things that we have, built, we have built false structures on, a false foundation that the Lord is trying to shake. And one reason could be because we're not positioning ourselves before the Lord going, Sovereign Lord, we trust you. No matter what you have for us, speak. We need more of you. Maybe the Lord is shaking us and we're ignoring it. Maybe we're going, man, that's, that's this or that. Maybe, maybe we're pointing back to a past shaking experience, not literally, but we're pointing back to an experience that we've had at a youth camp, at a church service, at a worship service, at a conference, and we're going, yeah, that, I'm, I'll eat on that, man. No, it's rotten. And not that it wasn't good, it was absolutely good, but it won't last for today. So what does it look like, church? If the one prayer emphasis of the early church was for boldness, what does it look like for the church to ask and to pray for boldness today? What does it look like? 
What does boldness look like for you and for, for the Parks Church? Listen, I'm, I'm wrestling through this, and, and for some of us, we, we know it, and I don't have any answers for this, by the way. Some of us, our minds instantly go to those missionaries, right, who will land in the Middle East, who are called to give their whole lives, and they, they go overseas, and we say to that, yes and amen, and some of you, God's put that call in your life, and you're running away from it. You're not being bold and stepping out in faith and doing what God has called you to do. Some of you think about other radical moments of faith in other people's lives. And we listen, listen to me. We long for more of these, right? We long for more people to be sent out. We long for more people like Jake and Katie Stuns, like the Twymans back there who say, listen, I'll give my whole life to go reach and unreach people. I'll give my whole life and surrender in a foreign context, right? But what does it look like also for those of us who are here? For those of us who, who God has placed here, what does it look like to be bold in the 21st century? I think for so many of us, boldness is going to be looking like laying down the cultural script, if you will, that we've been handed to follow. Even in the church, follow these rules. Listen to this. Show up here. Do this. Boldness is going to look like us absolutely humbling ourselves before the sovereign Lord and going, God, speak to us. God, show up in power because we cannot sustain on old power. We cannot feast on old manna any longer. In boldness, maybe for some of us, and I asked this to our elders as we met even this week, what does boldness look like for our church? And some of the things that were even thrown out there was just, it's going to look like, like us foregoing certain things and living unhurried. It's going to look like us maybe not being, being obsessive over trying to be everywhere and in everything with everyone. It's going to look like where we view inconveniences as appointments by God. Where we don't look with humanly eyes upon things but we look with spiritual lenses upon people in places God has us, that we view our time differently than everyone else around us, that our schedules aren't actually our schedules and we submit them to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That we don't count leisure time as our time. That we don't give God simply the time we have left over, but he is all that we have. A.W. Tozer, and this is where I want to end, and Sam and Tessa, you guys can come up. In his book, uh, Paths to Power, I want you to look at this quote. He said, it is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. Like, think, think about this, Church. Like worldly standards. Let me tell you even what the church script is. Come to church on Sunday morning for 75 minutes, and that's where you'll know the power of God. Oh, you'll taste and see it, but you'll never live in it if that's it. It may be envied for its depth of loving relationships or for its spontaneous joy. It may be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle. Listen, Christian, 
is your lifestyle, is the way that you conduct your life. And this is what I'm asking of me. Revolutionary to those outside of us who don't know Jesus. Or does it look absolutely in step with what they're doing as well? Like, does our our church look that way? And here's what happens when we live that kind of lifestyle, exposing the hollow values and destructive selfishness of the society it seeks to serve. But it certainly cannot be ignored. Hollow values, selfishness. And here's one of my greatest fears, that what Tozer meant to describe the world, hollow values and selfishness, actually describe the church, actually describe something that is void of the power of God. Listen, I don't want to read Acts and go, wasn't God so good? Wasn't he a great God? I want to read the book of Acts and go, God, do it today. Acts 4, I want boldness today. God, I need your power today. If I'm going to make it through this day how you've called me to, I need you. I'm desperate for you. If I'm going to be any kind of picture to hollow values and selfishness in the world that even pervade my life, I need the power of God in my life. Anybody else? Like, listen, this, and by the way, this will clear seats, and we're totally good with that. Because then we get down to people who are hungry for the things of God. People who want to thirst after the things that God's called us to thirst after. Oh, that church, yeah, it may be hated and persecuted even among other Christians. Gawked at and talked at, but it won't be ignored. It cannot be ignored. That's what I, we... We want. And listen, it is a journey. It is a journey of getting to that place. But where it starts is us humbling ourselves, just like these disciples, after the moment of persecution, going, Sovereign Lord. So it feels disingenuous not to practice prayer together at this moment. It feels disingenuous for us just to go, let's pray and go have our lunch or brunch or whatever happens after 9 a.m. Church, can we seek the face of God, even for the next couple moments, earnestly asking the sovereign Lord of the universe to speak and to empower us, the Parks Church, for boldness that we might speak his word, not our word, not the word that we're handed by other churches. No, we want to speak the word of God. But first, we need the word to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us we have not because we ask not. So, Lord, we are praying with all confidence to our sovereign Lord. God, we are asking that you might fill us afresh and anew, God, with your presence and with your spirit so that we might testify to who you are, to the glory and the goodness of your son, Jesus Christ. So as we go from here, oh God, may we daily posture ourselves before you, seeking you, asking you, coming before you with that kind of same desperation. God, I pray that you would move, continue to move in and through the Parks Church. Lord, as we even stop down this week for a day specifically of Thanksgiving, might you remind us of your goodness toward us. 
the foundation, the salvation that we have in your son Jesus. Let us go from here with boldness and courage because you have moved in our hearts. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen and amen.